Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Helen. I'm Stephen. And this is a New Statesman special Budget Day podcast. Uh, Philip Hammond has not long sat down in the chamber. Um, Jeremy Corbyn has given not one of his best performances, but we're still chewing over exactly what's happened. But there are a couple of top lines that have come out so far. And there's 145 million a year rise on from changing national insurance contributions to the self-employed. Philip Hammond says that's an average of 60p a week for a self-employed person, but I can see a small row brewing over that. Uh, he tried some jokes with more or less uh, success. Uh, he doesn't really seem to have any targets he needs to achieve. He gave some more detail on these so-called T-levels. There's going to be what's called parity of esteem between technical and academic qualifications. And 1.3 billion of social care extra money has now been upgraded to 2 billion extra social care money over three years. But, Stephen, give me your instant reaction. What was the most interesting bit of this speech? I think the interesting thing in some ways was, one, the NIC row in, and the business rates U-turn, because they both speak to the conservative problem, which is you can win a majority for, we will have lots of cuts. The second you go, by the way, these cuts will affect your constituents, a bit of the Tory party, whichever bit it happens to be affected, turns around and goes, I'm sorry, wait, wait, what did you say? And actually, although a lot of problems the Tories have, you assume will get better if the polls are right and they win a massive majority. Actually, that becomes more acute if you have a majority of 100 plus. Because the reason why austerity worked in heavy inverted commas in the last parliament is cuts were concentrated on people in acute need or Labour voters. There were more Conservative voters in 2015 than there were in 2010. All of the indications are there will be yet more in 2020. And the fascinating thing is Osborne had lots of targets and every year would go, he'll have to U-turn on that, that won't work. We now have a weird situation where Philip Hammond goes, we have a plan. His plan is basically 2018 to 17, quest- 17 to 18, question mark, 2018 to 19, question mark, 2020, 19 to 20, question mark, 2020 to 21, operational surplus. And it's like, well, how are we going to know if you're, I mean, obviously he's not going to, he's not going to get there. That is political beauty of what they are doing, right? It is a, it's a movable feast that never actually gets reached. My, um, my question about this is something that's come up in Labour briefings past is actually like them doing the Vice documentary is a kind of, what did you want the headline to be? This is what I kind of don't understand when, when Philip Hammond sat down. There normally is with, with chancellors a kind of top line or a theme or, you know, so it's like the repairing the roof budget or whatever it is. And I don't know what Philip Hammond wants everyone to be talking about. I think that what they will be talking about at least in the next couple of hours is probably the national insurance stuff. But 
What do you think he was going for? Well, I mean, that is the fascinating thing, because they are the only opportunity in the British political calendar to go, look, here's what we are about. And in an odd way, the problem is, is what this revealed is what they want to be about isn't true, right? Theresa May has this idea when she looks in the mirror that she has a, a broad agenda that is beyond being the person who, when the music stopped and everyone else had immolated, the is Conservative the Parliamentary present. Party went, you'll do, I guess. The fascinating thing is the continued tweaks to try and make grammar schools not a disastrous policy and idea. And also to try and not make grammar schools called grammar schools, which is, I like the idea now we're talking about selective free schools, right? And actually not even all of the new free schools are going to be selective. So it's kind of just, we're just trying to ease you into the idea of grammars really slowly. Yeah, so the, the transport thing is a fascinating one. So one of the... One of the many cases against grammar schools is that despite this idea that, oh, they, they help people who are on low incomes, they don't, you're actually, your chances of getting into a grammar school are higher if you are affluent and not very bright than if you are not affluent and very bright, right? They just fail on every measure that you cause to set them. So they've got this new transport thing where free travel will be in a larger area around a grammar school if you're on free school meals, which is obviously another desperate attempt to try and jack up the criteria. The problem is we've discovered uh, what the version of a grammar school then delivers good outcomes for its pupils and isn't regressive. It's called a comprehensive. So the, the, the more changes you make to the, the grammar model, and, and of course all of this still has the problem there is not a majority in the uh, in the Lords for grammars, and the majority in the House for it is a unsafe at many speeds. So that's a bit of a problem. But the, f- the fun thing, of course, is the change to national insurance contributions. Before we get to that, can I try you? Can I, can I see, can you give me a rating of one to five hams on some of the Hammond jokes? Because I think one of the things that will definitely happen is because Philip Hammond has a reputation as spreadsheet Phil, this idea that he's extremely boring, he's often referred to as being an accountant, even though he doesn't have any accountancy qualifications. The fact that he told some objectively not great jokes is now being people are treated as if like this was a kind of live at the Apollo set. So tell me, this is the spreadsheet bit, but bear with me. Because I have a reputation to defend. So are we ranking these for jokes? Because it's a bit like, is someone fit, yes or no, on the Westminster axis? Oh, by the way, while I was on holiday in Paris, we actually met Benoit Hamon. And I would like to say my instinct that he is fitter than Emmanuel Macron. You, I that just was a, kissed my fingers, kissy finger by the gesture. way. For the, um... Um, okay, but give me, give me one to five hams on the uh, ham rating of, of Hamon jokes for that. So in terms of a real joke, no hams. In terms of a Westminster joke, three hams. Okay, what about this? They don't call it the last Labour government for nothing. In terms of a real joke, two hams. In terms of a Westminster joke, five hams. Solid five. I agree with you on that. I think that's five out of five hams. And how about, this is Hammond on Corbyn, he's so far down the black hole that even Stephen Hawking has disowned him. I mean, again, Stephen Hawking didn't actually visit any black holes. He's not Doctor Who. Uh, so I don't I mean, even know what the, the black hole in this joke refers I mean, admittedly, to. Admittedly, it's a joke of... This thing is like, is a joke good if it's the quality that Mark Steele would tell? On that basis, three hams in real life. Uh, in Westminster basis, six billion If hams. there's a new, like, steel hams ratio, then everything is going to be much higher. But this is what I mean about, you know, you've, you've, got, you've got to have a kind of a baseline. What, what is zero, right? So am I measuring it against, you know, the kind of jokes that Ed Balls would tell? Or am I measuring it against the kind of jokes I would voluntarily pay money to see? Because cause obviously those two scales, it's a bit like going, oh, how, how hot is my stove? And we're going to measure it on the same scale we measure the sun? <laughs> they just can't be related to one another? Okay, well, let's move on to something that is uh, definitely not funny. 
national insurance contributions. So this in terms of money is actually £145 million. It's obviously a lot if you're you know, redecorating your conservatory, but in terms of the public finances, it's not a huge amount. But I think it suffers from the what I think of as the op-ed columnist's curse. So it's quite a well-known thing that journalists who are self-employed set themselves up as a company and therefore they benefit from a, a much better tax rate than you would do if you were paying it as, as income. So there's going to be a lot of very grand op-ed columnists who, have, have, who will now be spluttering into their marmalade. And actually, you know, a lot of self-employed journalists who aren't so well off, um, who have been personally affected by this. And I always think a tax rise that personally affects op-ed columnists is something to approach with an enormous amount of caution. But it's one of those how many divisions has the Pope issue. I don't know. How, how so, many, what, who? At, at Yalta, or maybe Potsdam, but at one of the end of the World War II summits, uh, they were all talking and someone... You can always get away with saying it was Churchill. Churchill says to Stalin, No, no, old boy, it wouldn't wouldn't do to do that. That would upset the Pope. And Stalin goes, Well, uh, how many divisions has the Pope? Why is he French? Hang because on I've just been this. to Paris, <laughs> okay? Like... wide open. Surely, yes, how many... No, yes, that's my Russian accent. How many divisions have Pope? Yeah, but that he... And, but, and obviously the Pope has soft power, but no hard power, right? And so, yes... Oh, like Panzer divisions? You mean like I thought you meant like the Pope could divide himself into? Okay, that is really uh, I I understand the metaphor now. Right. So yeah, this is the thing, right? So yes, a, a, a number of highly paid op-ed columnists will embarrass themselves, frankly, right? Because they will they will write pieces which are incredibly revealing and not in the way they think they are. And yes, of course, there are lots of other freelance journalists who who actually this this will substantially hit their quality of life, but. It's the perfect tax rate, tax rise, because it affects hardly any people. They all live in about eight constituencies, very few of which have got Tory MPs who are going, oh my God, my, my wafer-thin majority. I think there is a reasonable point, though, that actually we need to review taxes on the self-employed, because we kind of boast all the time about this amazing jobs miracle and low unemployment. But what that often means is, you know, people working in Deliveroo or for Uber or for, you know, and a shift to a nail well, actually, bar. Actually, or... the, the big boom in self-employment is weirdly in banking, advertising. So I actually think this is actually the bit of the budget that actually I quite like, right? In the, you always have this problem with tax hikes that for them to be worthwhile in terms of what you can do with the money, they have to upset people. So the clever way to raise taxes is to work out where revenue is going to go up and then raise it at a point where, because more people will be self-employed, more highly paid people will be self-employed in the next decade or two. So if you change it before they get into that category, yeah. then those then it's just the rules of the game that they went into. Yeah, this is like the big mistake that Labour has been making since 2010 over tuition fees, right? You can go around a university campus and get a lot of cheers about how tuition fees are bad. What then tends to happen, and you can see this with polling in terms of opposition to tuition fees, People leave university, and in the main, they kind of go, oh, this is just a tax, isn't it? And the Tories go, speaking of tax, do you know what? We've cut income tax, and that is a more lucrative um, lever, lever to pull uh, in terms of bribes, basically. Yeah, all this to... sort of thing. I remember, I can't remember which Tory minister was, went on the Today programme a couple of years ago and went, you know, we've had to put the... Um... The pe we've raised the pension age, and actually, you know, that's a pensioners are making a big sacrifice here. And you were like, uh, "You're raising the pension age in like 2030, so actually, you know, 30 year olds or 40 year olds are making a big sacrifice, guys." But yeah, the yeah, ta raising taxes that people don't yet know they're going to pay in the future is probably a, quite a clever way to yeah. do it. Although, of course, the fun thing about that is, I think, and I am probably wrong because it's a m minutes after the budget. Then, so obviously in 2015, they ran on a promise of not raising income tax, national insurance and VAT. 
So I've looked at this, and I and yeah, there are several mentions unequivocally says we will not raise national insurance contributions. They now say that it applied only to class ones, actually, technically. But I don't think this technicality is necessarily going to help them that much because there are times when it is just referred to as we will not raise national insurance. Also, in terms of the national, the actual national insurance bill that came out of the last financial, there was not a distinction between the two. I mean. We're in a slightly weird state where voters don't really like elections. In the main, voters quite like, or at least dislike, Theresa May considerably less than they dislike every other politician in the country. So there's this weird thing. There's a very strong democratic argument for why we ought to have an election. There is no real demand outside of the theoretical case for why we ought to have one. There was a brilliant um, Onion headline, I think, that Raphael Baer pointed me to, which was, um, Theresa May unwilling to waste Jeremy Corbyn on snap election. And I think that's probably the thing is like she if she if she went to a snap election now then she you know she'd have chucked him away whereas she's potentially got years more of uh, of using you know of having an opposition leader. I mean I watched some of his speech and it was again the problem was it was pre-written in large part but also I just don't think he can be nasty to people's faces which is a kind of a difficulty when you have to stand up opposite side. He just raises the volume but he doesn't kind of do snark very well and actually weirdly Philip Hammond, it turns out, can do snark quite well. He did some quite sassing of the um, the SNP. I don't know if you saw that bit. Um, and he did lots of he did lots of kind of human shruggies, actually. You know that kind of hands up in the air, kind of like forget about it gesture too. Well, I mean, the thing is about about the budget, and this is why I think in some ways it was an odd missed opportunity for the government. It is politics on easy mode for the government because you get all of the figures, you get a massive run up, you basically get an hour to stand up and go, look, here's what we're about. And you tell, yeah, and you tell people what to write, yeah. and quite a lot of the time they oblige you by writing it. Whereas if you're the opposition, you have to sit there with the same level of preparation. I mean, obviously he hasn't had to run back from Westminster to the podcast catacomb as I have, but it is quite difficult. I didn't stay for Corbyn's speech because I had to get out the second that, that Hammond was out. But my instinct is is that the, the opposition always loses budget day. What they have lost since, having been very rude about his joke, since Ed Ball stopped being Shadow Chance, and not just since Ed Ball, when Chris Leslie left the Shadow Chance, Shadow Treasury, the, the lineage of there being someone who had worked in the actual Treasury or in that 1994 Shadow team who knew how to run the week after the budget very well went. And yeah, there are lots of criticisms that you can make some fair, some unfair of how Chris Leslie operated as Shadow Chancellor under Harriet, but he was absolutely right in his first budget briefing to go, tax credits. That is going to be a problem for them. That can't work. People will not accept that. The difficulty is, is actually, although James Medway, John McDonald's big brain, probably could do a similar briefing, for one reason or other, the Shadow Treasury team has chosen not to do that, which means you probably won't get the Thursday-Friday nightmare of, oh, we've got these great this headlines. Bit's oh, this bit's yeah. fallen apart. X, Y, Z. So actually, I think in terms of the, the problem with the, the Labour leadership, him being a bit flaccid in the chamber is not a problem. The lack of a second ball Thursday, Friday is a problem, not least because it is actually one of the few opportunities to stop the government doing things that, that they don't like. Yeah, there is a kind of good way that you can just get them to pull a screeching halt on stuff. I mean, I, I, because we, I knew we were doing this podcast. I watched the whole budget with a kind of an eye of like, where's the landmine that we that Philip Hammond is, has stepped on, and and you know he he can hear a faint ticking, but not, nothing is yet. You know, his leg is still attached to his body at this point. I can't see that yet. I think. Um, so I think there are three. Oh, good. Okay, give me landmine watch. Give me a rating of one to five ham mines. 
The national insurance contributions, yes, it's quite small. Yes, it affects very few people. Tory MPs don't like tax tax rises. Yep. Right? Number one. Um, number two. Number two, there has been some money for social care. There has been nowhere near as much money as both it and the NHS need. And so, it's over three years as well, and it's isn't over it? three so years. So it's less money than it needs now over three years. And, you know, now as I've kept saying, the government kind of had a get-out-of-jail-free card in that it wasn't a very cold winter, right? But the NHS is in a permanent state of winter conditions, right? That is what the, the National Audit Which kind of means that we're an unseasonable cold snap, which wouldn't... It isn't implausible, right? Yeah, you know, it, it, ra- or, it like it snowed last April. I mean, yeah. you know, climate change would be crazy. Or just any anything like that from suddenly uh, the NHS, uh, just a bit of it falling over. Third thing. Third thing is grammars, right? And, well, and schools in general, right? So they've put a little bit of money towards capital spending. And there is a problem than, than basically the number of school repairs since 2010 has, has fallen off a cliff. So that is a problem. Schools do need more capital expenditure. They also need more day-to-day expenditure because a lot of them are having to lay off staff. That is a a massively toxic combination, right? It's a voter problem, obviously. People don't like it when their kids' schools lay off teachers and close facilities, particularly not parents who might usually vote Tory, who perhaps rely on after-school clubs, music clubs, other things that are the first in line because they are non-statutory requirement and schools have been squeezed for a long time now i mean the ring fencing in this means actually a real terms cut as inflation erodes the amount of money that they get so they they have had a not a not a bounteous last couple of years and it has the nic problem of it affects columnists and journalists but it has the the not the added problem that it is also a problem that the the average person is actually sympathetic towards and and the thing you can expect is then the number that you could throw into the school system to fix that problem and the number that they're spending on you know on i can't believe it's not grammars are if i were in the government terrifyingly similar because if you have a thing which every expert on education agrees grammars don't work right so if you have a very expensive thing that is basically policy making by some bloke in the pub told me this was a good idea and you have an actual crisis in schools suddenly the optics of grammars stops being people like julia hartley brewer going well i have this pointless anecdote and starts being why is my school closing why are you spending the money and that i think is probably the biggest landmark we've really got a, we've got a great piece on the site today by a um london head teacher writing under the pseudonym jackie stevens um which is about this idea about like you know saying i am worried that if a grammar opens in my area uh, my school will become a sink school kind of by default and the story of london schools over the last 20 years for a huge combination of reasons has been one of you know incredible a turnaround and achievement and actually you know one that has meant that the life chances of poor people have been vastly vastly improved and the idea that you're kind of going to dismantle that by saying well actually we need to help the brightest well actually quite a lot of the brightest you know are also being being helped at the, the moment I, I yeah I, I think i agree with you on the landmines was there anything else that was interesting Apart from Bandasaurus Rex, Philip Hammond, trying a little light-hearted comedy. Well, I think the interesting thing is what wasn't in there in terms of Brexit. Not mentioned at all. The interesting thing is that the OBR's assumption is the government will fail in some of its Brexit uh, objectives. We will not have frictionless trade with the EU. There will be a, a long-term fall of exports. But also, interestingly, they've softened that a bit because they assume Theresa May will also fail in her hope of getting immigration down to tens and thousands. So if you assume more success in the government in one area, it gets better, but it gets concomitantly worse if you also uh, assume success on the immigration issue. And so, you know, the the, the government's pre-Brexit economic policies haven't gone away. 
the borrowing has gone up because of Brexit anyway, and they have no path to actually meet their deficit target. And there is this giant meteor of does Theresa May mess up her Brexit negotiations? So I think the big thing in an odd way is is the jokes, which were very funny for Westminster, will look spectacularly bad if in 2019 we tumble out into WTO terms. That was, I think, the biggest thing that I, I thought when I came away. I thought, wow, you'd almost could have been forgiven listening to that speech thinking that there wasn't anything massively interesting happening in British politics this year because it was a kind of like, oh, well, the OBR's revised its growth forecast upwards too late for this year, but then actually next year is looking a bit weaker. And you would just thought, well, and, and then there was all that briefing, which I know you wrote about, about, you know, Philip Hammond's got his massive war chest of money, which you're like, what is this putative money coming from? You know, we're still running a deficit. We're still running got a huge amount of debt. But was it 88% debt to GDP yeah. ratio? I mean, the kind of thing that... You know, George Osborne in 2010 would have said was a, like, you know, was going to see us all die in a ditch. We now kind of accept as the new normal. And yeah, I just think it was a, it was a kind of, it might be looked back on and be seen as the kind of the blinkered budget, right? The budget that kind of was the last thing that happened before, you know, you really had to take into account the fact that our economy is going to have to refigure itself in a you know fundamental ways tell me who who made the best facial expression in the chamber i saw Alison mcgovern was getting quite uh, energized did you see i saw well, a little cheeky little side eye from george osborne during the next bit i sit right up in the side so i can only see the government benches there was a bit during the grammar schools where i mean obviously i'm not a lip reader but i would be willing to bet all of the money in my pockets and osborne was turning to the person next to him and being like what the fudge <laughs> is this um, <laughs> um okay well uh yeah do send us your feedback. We're on at Stephen KB and at Helen Lewis, and we'll be back next week with a regular episode of the podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) 
a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.